Hello, this is Kirk Kovac. It is March 22nd. This is Perspective from Politics NC. I am in Carborough with Thomas Mills. Thomas, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing, Kirk? I am doing all right. Uh, we're coming in today. It's Friday, and the first thing we want to talk about is the 9th District election in North Carolina. There is a large field of Republicans. I think 10 are officially in. And first, in in that regard, we want to talk about Thomas, uh, your thoughts on that Republican field and how the primary is shaping up. And then specifically, there were there's a little bit of bad blood amongst the Republicans out there. So could you unpack that? Well, when you got a great big field like that in a special election, you're going to have a little tiny electorate. So it's really hard to predict these the races like this. Everybody's going to kind of have their little area of, of uh, support. You've got the, the guy who... Um, the boss hog candidate who's a county commissioner in Union County. And I think he ended up the only prominent Union account, Union County candidate, right? I, I haven't heard otherwise, which is a good point because unions very important. Union, union probably makes up uh, a, the largest single segment of the Republican primary. So if he can consolidate his report, his support there, you got a ton of people out of Mecklenburg running, so they're going to split that vote all to pieces. And you have to hit thirty percent, I think. And you got to hit thirty percent to get over a threshold. Um, you know, it it could be it could be a quite a fight down there. And the, I think what you've got is kind of you you got probably a lot of different factions, but two in particular are kind of the the, the people that were with Mark Harris before he melted down in front of the board of elections and made a decision that he wouldn't run. And then you've got the, the pro Pittenger people. There was never Harris beat Pittenger in the regular primary. There's never been good blood between them. And then, uh, Pittenger wrote a, wrote a scathing email about Dan Bishop, state Senator, who was author of HB two, um, Linking him, trying to link him to Harris, and not more. More importantly, link him to McRae Dallas and the, and the the scandal down in Bladen County. Uh, and all this played out on Twitter. So the next thing that happened was uh, uh, Bishop fires back and says, "I'm going to sue you if you don't take that back." Wait a few hours, and all of a sudden, uh, Pittenger's walking back that. Uh, email and saying he had made a mistake and he apologized to Bishop. So it'll be interesting to see if we see more of this kind of divide between the the old Pittenger camps and the, and the Harris camp and how that plays out. I mean, one thing that could happen is is it becomes a benefit to uh, like the guy, the, the, the boss hog guy. If, if you have two Charlotte factions that, that are potentially front runners splitting the vote all to pieces and beating each other up, people might say across the district might say, these are not candidates we want, which opens the door to kind of lesser candidates. Regardless, the main thing about that election is nobody knows. And I, with 10 people on the ballot, I would not want to put money in that race. It has been very strange to watch it unfold as well. I remember a few weeks ago, they had their, I guess, Republican County conventions and a lot of the the party leaders were imploring people to keep it civil because whatever happens here, somebody has to face Dan McCready, who is going to cruise to the primary. I don't think anybody registered as a Democrat, or if right. it was, it was token. Um, he's going to keep fundraising like he has been since November. And and then you had Pittenger level these claims, which is odd to me because, 
like you said, three hours after Dan Bishop threatened to sue him, he just said, yeah, you're right. It was untrue. So it's, it is, it is in a weird place where they're just telling like outright lies about each other. I mean, either, either one of those people had to be in the right. I mean, Bishop or Pittenger, one of them is telling a lie about it. So they're just lying about each other and they're all this infighting, but they, they still have to coalesce around some candidate. And I I saw something in Politico saying Republicans privately are saying they're worried about raising money because it's going to be such a divisive primary. I think the election is September 5th for the general, if they don't have to do another primary. So most likely this, this election will end up going to, there'll be a, a second primary in September and then that candidate will have until November 5th to raise a bunch of money against right. Dan McCready, who doesn't have to spend any money in a primary. Yeah, and what you could end up having is right now it's kind of a free-for-all, and, and if nobody hits that 30% threshold, you've got the whole summer to watch those guys tear each other up and then have to try to come together to uh, run against McCready in November. And we, we've talked about this before. Because the Republican field is so divided, it feels like there's – that they're at a disadvantage, but all things considered, this is still like an R plus nine right. district. And I, I wrote about it the other day, just like Republicans, this is their election to lose and they're trying their hardest to do so. It seems like, because all they have to do is run an, a normal Republican and it's, it's really taxing them to do that. So it'll be interesting to see what unfolds there. Um, I think, that's enough for the ninth district right now because that's going to be a continuing story until September, most likely November. But uh, just today, there was a story in the News and Observer about the Board of Governors. Uh, some of them were reappointed, and there was there was a bit of an issue from the Democrats were unhappy with the procedure, uh, the way they voted instead of having ballots. I guess it was just an up or down vote on a slate of candidates that uh, Phil Berger presented to them. But all that aside. There seems to be a lot of toxicity in higher education in North Carolina and the way that it's administered um, from the state level down. So what are your thoughts about the Board of Governors? And there's been a lot of leadership leaving recently. We saw Carol Folt is going to the University of Southern California. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on all the changes? Happening well, there? these guys have made a mess of the Board of, Board of Governors. They broke that cardinal rule. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the Board of Governors was working pretty well until Republicans decided that they had to go put a bunch of ideologues on that board. And it's been a shit show ever since. You know, uh, the the first thing they did just about was came in and they, they fired Tom Ross. And the only reason they could give for firing him was he was a Democrat. And ever since then, they haven't been able to keep anybody in place. Um, they They rolled out Margaret Spellings as if they had really done something, accomplished something in replacing Tom Ross. Well, Spellings got fed up with him, and she left. She's already gone. She barely stayed three years. Um, They ran off. uh, They fired Carol Folt because they didn't like the way she handled um, uh, the Silent Sam thing. And now this week, it turns out that they pushed out the ECU chancellor, who was Margaret Spellings' first hire. So... They're, what they're sending is a clear message that no, the University of North Carolina is a lousy place to work because there is a lousy administration, and they're firing shots at each other. You know, when, when the ECU chancellor had to go, one of the board members, uh, Steve Long, went after Harry Smith, who's the board chair, and, and, and Smith does 
from all appearances, seems to be a pretty arrogant guy. Uh, but he he chastised Smith for run, for for chasing the ECU chancellor off. And today, in a board meeting, he apologized for having aired his grievance publicly. Now, the whole thing with these 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 are ideologues running this this show. These these are people who are. They're, they're free market ideologues. And part of Harry Smith's problem with that ECU professor is he had this bright idea of buying a bunch of apartments that I think were in foreclosure. And he was going to turn them into uh, private sector student housing. Well, the ECU chancellor nixed it. I mean, it was a clear and obvious conflict of interest. The guy's sitting on the board of governors, and he's trying, he's trying to... Uh, to, to make money off the university through a real estate deal. It's just, it's awful stuff. And, um, but, so the, so the chancellor pushed back and said, no, I'm not going to approve it. Well, they ended up pushing him out. Now, he would, Harry Smith would tell you that had nothing to do with it, but it sure doesn't look good. And uh, this is kind of who they are. They've been fighting nonstop. None of, none of the chancellors are happy. Uh, I think another chancellor got gone too, besides Folt and... Fault spelling and, and the ECU. Western yeah, there may have been at Western year. Western Carolina. Um, but nobody's happy. It's not a it's not a pleasant place to 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 work. The thing that to me is so ironic is it used to be the president of the University of North Carolina had reached the pinnacle of their career. Now they've turned it into merely a stepping stone, as Carol Fault clearly showed us by going to a, 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 another comparable university in the University of California system. So, you know, it's, it really is an embarrassment uh, for the state. And it really, it, at the end of the day, it falls in the lap of the General Assembly because, as you said, they've reappointed most of these people. they got a board that's, that's embarrassing the state, making bad decisions, harming the university. So what do they do? They put them back in place. And as you pointed out to me, off off uh, off uh, record, uh, a number of these guys are, are are lobbyists. It's like a clear conflict of interest, and and it's uh, you know it it's like these guys want to go make make money off of these appointments that used to be public service. So it, it's a problem. It's been true since the Republicans started re- reshaping higher education in the state. And the biggest thing that I've I've noticed is that when mistakes are made, instead of mea culpas or anything like that, they double down on everything. So anytime there's a problem, they just seem to make it worse because, you know, Phil Berger can't be wrong or, or right. Tim Moore can't be wrong. So you have all these people like like you pointed out, the lobbyists, nothing wrong with being a lobbyist, but there's conflicts of interest with having these people on these boards and the same with the real estate deal. You wouldn't have these problems of apparent conflicts if you appointed people that wouldn't have them in the first place. And they just keep on sending the same people there and, and you get the same result every time if you send the same people. Right. And if they wouldn't micromanage, I mean that historically right. the board has not tried to micromanage the, the, the presidents or, or the chancellors. And these guys feel like they got to have their hand in everything and it's just made a mess of it. Uh, I I worry that the UNC system will be one of the premier problems that the Republican leadership will leave eventually when when there is a change in one of the houses 
but that will be their legacy, I think, is they've really messed with um, one of the best assets the state has, which is a strong public university system. Um, recently, I think just yesterday, Chaz Beasley announced that he was going to run for lieutenant governor on the Democratic side. So that brings us up to five candidates, uh, Terry Van Dunn, Cal Cunningham, Chaz Beasley, Yvonne Holly, and Alan Thomas. So what are your thoughts about the Democratic side of that primary? My guess is it didn't finish yet. We're still early. We got five candidates in there. And look, a lot of these people have pretty big constituencies. You know, uh, Cal Cunningham's been known around the state for years. Uh, he's got he's got people who have been fans of his since he ran for Senate in 2010. Uh, Yvonne Holly is from a very prominent family in, 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 um, in Raleigh. Uh, she was one of the people who helped desegregate the schools, and she'll have a lot of support, particularly among African Americans in, in Wake County in eastern North Carolina. Um, Chaz Beasley has is, is been considered a rising star. Um, he's an African American legislator out of Charlotte, so he can probably consolidate that block of Democratic support down there, and, and that that kind of reaches into the Charlotte media market, which stretches all the way from uh, uh, the from way down east all the way out west. So, you know, he, he brings a lot. Um, who else? Who who else have I left Alan out? Alan Thomas. Uh, Thomas is a uh, he's a county commissioner out of Hope County. He probably is not going to get a ton of traction. I mean, there's a lot of that's a lot of heavyweights in there. Um, to be competing with. And at the end of the day, it's probably who's going to be have enough money to com- compete. That, and, and they're all getting in early enough that, you know, a year from now, TV ought to be loaded up with Lieutenant Governor commercials. So, Well, they, they do sort of cover every part of the state. I think Van Dunn is from the mountains, right? Yep. She'll, she'll have a lot of support in Western North Carolina. She's, yeah. And, and she's... the mountains and Charlotte and Raleigh yep. and then Cunningham sort of anywhere... He seems to be right. He's from Lexington state, yeah. originally, so you know. I mean, there's there's a. It's going to be a hard fault primary, and it's going to be real interesting to see how it shakes out. But it's it's awful early to have this many people in in a down ballot primary like this. So, I I would suspect that you're going to see at least a couple of more. So, well, it is interesting how crowded this lieutenant governor field is but we still don't have an apparent uh, senate candidate and i know it's still early for a lot of these things but there has been a lot of focus on north carolina especially with tom tillis in the news lately about uh, who might run for senate and it doesn't seem like any of the usual suspects are are going to it, step up this year it's it's interesting uh, you know it i think you've got a clearly vulnerable u.s senator and Nobody seems to be jumping up to run against him. I, I, I'm sure that there's pretty heavy recruiting going on right now by the DSCC, uh, but I'm not hearing too many names. The names that I'm hearing right now after a lot of people saying no is uh, former state senator Eric Mansfield, who ran for lieutenant governor in 2018, is certainly considering it, and, and Eric is a, a remarkably talented uh, communicator. He's he's a he's also a, he's a minister, and um, he's a guy who can get people on a spe- on, on their feet when he's when he speaks. Um, so 
I think Eric would be a strong candidate. I still am not sure what Deb Ross is going to do. I, I think, uh, you know, there was a while in there where I, there was a buzz around her, and then it, more recently I have not heard as much about her. I don't know if she said she was not interested or, or what, but, uh, you know, she ran a good campaign. She raised a ton of money. She was an attractive candidate. I can't believe that she's not getting pressure right now to get throw her hat back in the ring too, but we'll just have to wait and see. Well, I suppose also for her, obviously there is that David Price seat that would be very attractive for a Democrat eventually. Right. But um, I, on her end, though, if, if nobody really competitive has jumped in the race, I guess there's there's no clear reason for her to jump in and start spending money. Right. If, I think if it, if it comes to a point where there's no one clearly going to run, it would it would make sense for her to jump in because she would she would win the primary as it stands right now pretty easily. I think so. Yep. At what point do you think when is filing for that over December? Okay, so there's still a while. Yeah, I mean, I mean I think look, we got a March primary, so it's kind of early, but if somebody's in by the by the fall, we, we we can still be in good shape. I mean, I always like to say, you know, Kay Hagan got in that race uh in um in October of 2007 when she first who did she unseat? Who did uh? That was Obama year, so she had. I'm drawing a blank on who Kay Hagan be- defeated, but uh, oh, she defeated Liddy Dole, you know, oh, yeah. which was a strong candidate. So it's you know it's it's there's still plenty of time to to, I think I think the reason nobody would get in is because everybody thought Dole was such a strong candidate. Nobody thinks Tillis is a strong candidate. You know, it's just I, th- I think part of it is is we've got a thin bench after being in the minority for so long. Well, also, um, Deborah Ross did run a, a good campaign in um, sixteen, but there was a year Trump won this state, and also Richard Burr said he's not going to run again in twenty two. So that leaves a lot of these um, top tier candidates with time to to wait and not have to run a competitive campaign, at least not against an incumbent, I mean, um, if he's not going to run. But Richard Burr is uniquely suited to win in this state, no matter what year it is, it seems. And and, and, I, and, and just because he said he wasn't going to run, I wouldn't count on that. He will get unbelievable pressure, particularly if it's a close Senate, to run again in 2022. So I, I'm not I'm not believing that he's, fin- he's finishing up his term. He may th- He may believe that right now. But circumstances change um, after twenty, after twenty twenty. If you're looking at a, you know, a, a closely divided U.S. Senate, the, the the amount of pressure from the Republican leadership to get him to run for reelection will be incredible. Well, I cannot imagine how expensive that race would be if he stays in. And yep. it's a, you know, one or two seat majority. That'll yep. be that'll be a good year. But um, the final thing. To discuss is Kimberly Reynolds is leaving as executive director. That's right of the North Carolina Democratic Party, um, and she really turned it around. What are your thoughts on her? You know, I've known Kimberly for a lot of years, and um, she was she was a a catch. I mean, she had run caucus organizations in North Carolina. She understood the structure of the party, and she came in at the right time. And she really. She did a remarkable job. The The party was a mess, and she was able to bring people together. She's personable, but she's tough, and uh, 
she 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 pulled the the party together she made it a, a very functional operation after having been a remarkably dysfunctional operation um and i i can't say enough about her i just think she did a great job all the way around um it's a tough thankless job you've got a lot of bosses when you're state party chair all the all the folks out in the county tend to be complaining to you because they're not getting their due um and and uh they you know it ends up falling on the executive director and and you didn't hear a ton of griping about her um even from from county chairs and county uh committees that normally are are never real easy to 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 pull together so she did a remarkable job um we we are we're still building as a party right now but she put us on she's going to leave it on firm footing and uh you know, we all, anybody who worked with Kimberly Ozer, a debt of gratitude. Well, I saw in the press release they are looking both in North Carolina and outside. Do you have any thoughts, I, probably not of an individual, but where would they look for a replacement? What sort of places do you think? Yeah, well, you know, we're going to be one of the most competitive states in the country. And and uh, we now have a, a highly functioning Democratic Party. They're going to look for top-tier talent, and they're going to look for— you know, there are a couple of different ways to look at it. One is to look at somebody who understands the state and comes in um, with some uh, uh, ties to the, to the folks, the establishment, and, and can hit the ground running. The other thing is to look, at, look for people who have run large organizations, because it is a large organization, who have a background um, in, in uh, running either state parties or, or – uh, um, nonprofit organizations that are politically oriented, um, and and be able to to pull all that together. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody about what they're thinking, but uh, it's a big job, and um, I, I I'm sure it's also going to be a a sought after job because we are such a high profile state in in presidential years, particularly. That'd be a big role to to start out new on the job and have the 2020 as the first yep. test yep that's right okay well we are just over 20 odd minutes so i think we'll wrap up and see what's happening next week if you liked what you heard you can review us on apple podcasts or wherever you listen and be sure to visit our website politicsnc.com be first to know about new candidates in our our 2020 tracker that's maintained by our own Darren Jans. So be on the lookout for that and check us out next week. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you.